Welcome back to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. I am your host, Toby Daniels. On this week's episode, we have Rachel Tippograph, founder and CEO of Micmac, a next generation e-commerce platform. Before founding Micmac, Rachel was the global director of social media at The Gap, overseeing strategy, implementation, and measurement. And during her career, she has received a number of accolades, including being named one of Forbes 30 Under 30, who are changing the world, and was recently named one of Ad Age's most creative people of the year. During our conversation, we discussed her time at The Gap and some of the strategic initiatives that she led during her time, the journey between leaving The Gap and starting Micmac, how brands are leveraging the Micmac platform, and some of her thoughts on Facebook's recent announcements and what Instagram's new checkout feature means for e-commerce companies. As always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Leads to Scale on your favorite podcasting app, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Excited to be here. So we like to give our listeners some background on our guests, and um, you know, I was doing a little bit of research on you. I mean, we've known each other, gosh, probably for the, the, the better part of a decade, but I was sort of doing a little bit more digging around, some internet sleuthing, and it was really interesting when I like, look at your resume um, and sort of the, the, the arc of your resume over the course of like the last 10 years. It's, it's interesting because it really closely follows the arc of social media evolution. Um, in, in other words, you know, you've been you've been right there since since the very early days and, and, and subsequently and for you know, the best part of a decade, you've, you've been very much at the forefront of, of social media. Um, you know, you started Undercurrent, which is obviously a super interesting agency in its day. Certainly, one of the more innovative shops that was was um, helping big brands figure out social. Then you then you joined, you went client side, joined the Gap as the head of social media, and now you're running Micmac, which is um, which is a platform that uses video to drive e-commerce conversions. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say, and you can just like tell me if you think I'm wrong, but it, it sort of appears to me that like much of this was by design. Um, or, or am I wrong? Is, is it been kind of like more opportunistic in terms of sort of how you've, you've made your, your career choices over the years? Yeah, I would say it's both. Uh-huh. Um, I've always been extremely entrepreneurial my whole life uh, and have had different businesses along the way. So for me, the end goal was always to personally build a billion dollar company. Right. Uh, From when? Like how young were you when you first had that kind of ambition? Literally five years old. Really? Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Wait, um, wait, as a five-year-old, like, what are you doing to occupy your time? And, and how are you kind of like yeah. forming that type of sort of thinking? If you spoke to me when I was five, I was planning to open a sporting goods chain. Oh, wow. And I would come up with names for my sporting goods stores. I would design the signs. So it's a really big deal that now Micmac actually has a street sign on Rivington and Ludlow. Amazing. Yeah. I love that. Um, but yeah, so when I started my career, you know, I went to NYU. Uh, and I graduated NYU in 2009. So if you lived in New York, 2008, it was the height of the financial crisis. And I was in business school as an undergrad, and literally everyone who's planning to get jobs at you know Goldman, Morgan Stanley, that was no longer an option. And so my friends and I, uh, we all got jobs at ad agencies because that's who was hiring young people at the time. Right place, right time, started my career at Undercurrent. I was Pepsi on Twitter. That right. literally was my first job, right? right? 
And uh, it just put me in this phenomenal mm. position to work with really progressive brands and, and build my professional brand. And I always wanted my end goal to be building a business, mm -hmm. but then opportunistically, mm -hmm. someone at Undercurrent left to join Ogilvy, worked for this guy named Seth Bartman. Seth then becomes the CMO of Gap, and when Seth is looking to hire someone to run global digital and social media, he asks my friend Jordan who should do it. He goes, there's only one person, Rachel Tippergraph. And so when you're in New York, every moment leads to another moment. That's why I always say you can't make enemies in this town. And when I was at Gap, I was really clear with Seth and really the entire organization that I was not going to be a lifer. I they hired me to create change. The company had a decade of declining sales, an aging customer base, and the mandate was lower the average age of the customer. So in three years, we knocked a decade off the customer. Net profits of the company increased by 70%. And I was at the forefront of seeing every single global and digital social media trend by being at that organization which then led me to the opportunity to create Micmac. Let's spend a bit, bit of time talking about that, that gap experience because, I mean, I, I obviously I can see how that was such an important opportunity, important role to take on, particularly as you're sort of honing your own um, abilities and expertise and, and as you're, you're really sort of beginning to kind of, you know, establish your, your own point of view. Um, but but talk about some of the the strategic initiatives and the programs that you you um, implemented while you were at Gap. Yeah. So the mandate for me, what success was, was lowering the average age of the customer. Right. And yeah. one of the first conversations that I ever had with my boss, I walked into his office and I said, I need a square in my iPhone, a U-Haul truck, five hundred pairs of denim, and a plane ticket to Chicago. And he goes, What are you talking about? And I said, I'm going to place a bet. If you let me sell denim out of the back of a truck that I'm going to park in Wicker Park, I bet you I could sell denim faster than the store in Michigan Avenue. It was a top five store for Gap. And he looks at me and he's like, I still don't understand what you're talking about. And I have this thesis in marketing, which is if you want to change people's perceptions or behaviors, you have to change the environment. No millennial wants to walk into a Gap store because the brand was so damaged between the years 2011 and 2014. We needed to make an environmental change. So one of the first programs that I ever created at Gap, which still exists at the organization today, was called Style By. It was the largest global influencer program that ever existed at the time. And the premise was simple. Hey, let's take our best products, send them to influencers around the world. This is 2011. Tell them, style it however you want, meaning Take a pair of Gap denim jeans, pair it with an Alexander Wang t-shirt. I don't care. Photograph it. The only requirement is you had to upload the content to this piece of JavaScript code that we gave them to put on their blocks, right? Because it's 2011. Mm -hmm. And what it was, was the Gap.com shopping cart. So two key things I started to lay the foundation for in Gap in 2011, which is a huge part of my business today, mm -hmm. which is that the future of commerce is going to be highly distributed and it's gonna be deeply rooted in visual content. So the, the second, so the first instinct was visual, or, or at least like the importance of, you know, visual and, and video content mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of the impact it's gonna have on, on e-commerce. But the other one was like, the other instinct was around sort of, dis, sort of distribution, mm -hmm. or, or at least, you know, um, the, the sort of disparate um, and distributed places in which people were beginning to want to engage in, mm -hmm. in different real retail and e-commerce experiences. Can, can you speak to that as well? Yeah. 
So again, going back to 2011, 2014, paying attention to everything that was happening in media, you were watching media properties owned and operated channels, traffic decline. All the traffic was starting to exist in feed. That was sign number one for me. Sign number two is when I started at Gap in 2011, Gap.com, the homepage, was the most traffic webpage within the Gap ecosystem. When I left in 2014, our product detail pages were seeing 5x the amount of traffic, meaning no one was entering the store anymore through the front door. They were using all these side doors to enter the Gap ecosystem that no one was paying attention to. What, what, can you just describe what you mean by product detail pages? Yeah. So uh, who makes your sweatshirt right now? Oh, it's uh, my wife bought it for me, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to know. Um, let's pretend it's Gap. Yeah, right. So sure Toby's that. wearing a camouflage hoodie. Yes. So gap.com forward slash camouflage hoodie is a product detail page, right? right? Got it. Got it. So that is now the most traffic web page within e-com. And so the point being is because of social media, when you're telling your friend about a dope sweatshirt that you want to buy, you don't say, hey, friend, go to gap.com so you could check out the sweatshirt to tell me if it's a good idea. Mm. You send them a URL to the product detail page. That is the end all be all within the customer journey online. So for me, paying attention to media, watching the decline of traffic in owned and operated channels, watching the decline of traffic of the gap.com homepage, but the rise of traffic in product detail pages was representation of where the customer journey was heading. Right. So, so um, you, you decided to leave the gap and I believe you took a little bit of time off. First of all, what was the initial sort of decision? Like, why did you decide to leave? Why did you decide to sort of take some, some time before kind of like, you know, launching yourself into the next thing? Yeah, so I left Gap uh, in the middle of 2014. So I spent three years with the organization. Uh, it was three positive years of the company's growth. And in the middle of 2014, a few things were happening. Uh, one, I started to feel very strongly in my belief that the internet was about to become a new video and e-commerce was gonna have to be a part of it. And I was experiencing a ton of pain points while at Gap to make video e-commerce scalable for the organization. And I was curious that there was no company out in the market trying to solve that pain point. So I recognized that there was a huge market opportunity and I was personally driven to solve that for every brand and retailer. Second was, uh, it was the perfect time in my life to kind of quit my cushy job because I had no responsibility other than the responsibility of myself and I recognized that I was lucky in that moment, right? Uh, and the third was, you know, for everyone who's ever worked at a big company, you were starting to see a lot of shifts in senior leadership. You could feel that there was a changing of guards and that maybe your life's work at that company uh, would become more challenging because new leadership was coming into place. So all three of those things led me to be like, this is the perfect time in my life to quit my job and turn my life upside down. So, so what, what I love about that though is, so I think at this point you'd sort of, you, you pretty much like formulated the big idea or the big insight that you wanted to sort of capitalize on and you could see the opportunity in front of you. Clearly, mm -hmm. there was a way for you to build that billion dollar business that you'd always had this like ambition to want to do. Um, and and if, if you were someone who, 
had that ambition from such an early age, what's really interesting to me is you, you then just decided to take like a hundred days to travel around the world and kind of sit on it mm-hmm. for a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine how hard that must be because I'm like an entrepreneur who's very impatient and just mm-hmm. wants to kind of get shit done. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about that experience and, and how did that benefit you? Like giving yourself that time and space yep. to kind of like not necessarily immediately launch into the next thing. Yeah. Um, so I've essentially been working my entire life because I love to be independent and make money. And and to be perfectly honest, I was tired, right? I felt burnt out. And I knew that even though I was so amped up to go build this company, that I just needed some time to explore my identity in a way that I haven't done before. Like I grew up in New York. I went to NYU. I personally needed to, to take a leap of faith and see what I'm like in another part of the world. And so I subletted my apartment in Williamsburg. And I bought a one-way plane ticket to Spain was my first stop uh, and made my way around the world. And it was actually this really crazy experience because what I did was I blasted my network, both personal and professional. And I said, these are the places I'm thinking of going. Introduce me to everyone and anyone you know. And like literally people that maybe I had two phone calls with at Gap or a dear friend, right? Mm. Introduce me to their friends and family all over the world. And one of the things that I quickly learned is that outside of New York, no one's ever too busy to meet you, right? There's no busy syndrome. People are like, come stay at my house. Like, what's at me when you land? And just that welcomeness, it was so refreshing. Um, And one of the things that I experienced while I was there, it was really interesting to see, you know, what parts of your digital life permeate in all these other countries and continents around the world. And two clear constants for me in my travels were essentially the social platforms, especially Messenger, and Uber. It's like anywhere I went, those two things were consistent, but outside of that, tons of differences. Um, And I spent like a good amount of time in Africa, and it was the same thing there as well. It's fascinating. I mean, I think one of the things that I feel most grateful for um, when I look back over the last like 10 years and and building Social Media Week and, and, and scaling it internationally is that the, the, uh, the friends and the relationships and the connections that I have built up over that time. And oftentimes, um, those relationships have been established because I've had the opportunity to go to different social media conferences. I literally just came back from our um, Hamburg conference mm. in Germany. And I went there. Um, yeah. The Beatles. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful city. Yeah. It's amazing. But but you're quite right. It's the the... To be able to experience just this like different level of hospitality, I mean, they just were so warm and so welcoming and complete strangers really going out of their way to sort of just make sure that I feel or felt, um, you know, well looked after. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's just a, obviously a great way to experience the world, a great way to travel the world. But what's interesting f- for me, um, you know, when you juxtapose those types of experiences with social media or the evolution of social media, you can start to see where it plays just like such a fundamentally important role, mm-hmm. a powerful role in terms of like, not just um, enabling you to be able to reach out and connect to fairly random or, or, or relatively unknown people, but also um, the ability to be able to establish those connections and relationships and then, and then keep them going, you know, over time. I mean, um, I, I, you know, 
there's a handful of people that I met in Hamburg that I'm still interacting with, even just like, mm-hmm. you know, a month later. Yep. And it's just so nice to be able to, to, to do that. Yeah, your WhatsApp friends. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah. Um, so, okay. So you, you've, you've taken some time off, you travel the world, you, you're, you're, you know, you're now sort of thinking about like, you know, coming back and jumping into it. Um, let's talk about Micmac, obviously, which is the company that you're now, you know, you're, you're now, um, um, operating today. Um, let's start with the name. Like what, yeah. what so just, mm-hmm. just tell us about the name, um, and, and tell us about like how you got the business off the ground. Yeah. So I've been building the company, uh, essentially since 2015 and like so many entrepreneurial stories, how Micmac operates today was not the original idea. Um, the thesis remains the same, but how we execute is different. So when I first brought Micmac to market in June of 2015, we were an iOS app. People literally called us QVC for Snapchat. I had comedians hawking products. I called all of my content mini commercials. I was HQ before HQ. Uh, the difference in the insight was I was asking people for money and they were giving money away. That small distinction. Um, but everything I sold was below $100. Everything I sold was tchotchkes. The original company name was Tchotchke. And one of my main investors, uh, who's a very well-to-do, prominent business person, said to me, you've got to change the name. I go, I know. He goes, no, you need to change it right now. If you change it right now, I'll double my investment. Wow. I was like, what? Seemed like might as well just try it, even though I was kind of personally offended by how the conversation was going. And I go to him out loud. Tchotchke means knickknack in Yiddish. I don't want to call the company knickknack. I was calling my content mini-mercials. I didn't want to call the company mini-mercial because it was too limiting, mm-hmm. so, but I love the double N. I go, mm-hmm. how about Micmac? He goes, it's amazing, done. No idea <laughs> if the website was available, if I could <coughs> trademark it, and that's the story of Micmac, and it you know remains to be an awesome name. It is, it's great. Um, all right, so now now describe the product um, and, and the, the service that you are providing today. Yeah. So um, I ended up pivoting the business from a consumer app to an enterprise software platform. And I brought the enterprise software platform to market in the beginning of 2017. Um, so you know, we're soon be approaching two and a half years as an enterprise software company. Best decision I ever made, also hardest. Yeah. And Micmac is the e-commerce platform for social video and beyond. So the business is broken into two parts. We call our software Micmac Attach. In its simplest form, it's a vertical video product details page that can connect to any e-commerce cart. So major third-party e-retailers like Amazon, Target, Walmart, Ulta, Sephora, Best Buy, Dick's Sporting Goods, Petco, or direct-to-consumer. So e-com platforms built on top of Demandware, Magento, BigCommerce, Spree, Shopify. Mm-hmm. And then there's a the second part of the business, which is our creative service arm called Micmac Studios, where literally all day long we only do two things. I either optimize existing assets to get people to hit add to cart, or I create original content from the ground up to get people to hit add to cart. So it's something super particular in the market. It's performance-driven DR e-com creative. Got it. Um, help, I mean, I, I, maybe I know the answer to, to this question, but like, you know, help our audience understand what this might be analogous to if there's anything else out there that's like similar yeah. Or, or, yeah. or at least the thing that you're ultimately going after or yeah. try, trying to disrupt. Yeah. Um, so I can talk about who are our competitors today and like where the company's heading. Sure. Um, so 
I would say the uh, sphere of the world that Micmac operates most closely within is what I call where to buy companies. So if you went to a major CPG company's website like Dove.com or Nesquik.com, there would be essentially features on the website that would allow you to shop it in detail. Those companies I'm completely displacing. They're, if you can't tell, I'm very competitive. Mm -hmm. I know their clients, and one by one, I'm taking each and every one of them, right? We're sort of the modern day version of that company. So my brands are these behemoth CPG brands. Mm -hmm. So P&G, Unilever, L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, Campbell's, Colgate, Nestle, Lego, it kind of goes on and on. If you're a brand where the majority of your e-com sales comes from major third-party e-retailers, you either are my client or you're going to become my client. So that's who my sort of competition is today. In terms of where the company is heading and what my billion-dollar dream is, is I want the Micmac logo to sit next to Demandware, Magento, BigCommerce, Spree, Shopify. Micmac is working its way to becoming the end-to-end e-commerce software platform for highly distributed brands. And, and um, the, the key piece, it seems to me, within all of that, not so much the differentiator, but I imagine it's the door opener or it's the, look, this is the reason why you should be working with us versus you know, any of the competition. And it comes down to the, the performance piece, mm-hmm. right? Which, which is to a certain extent, how does data inform yeah. creative? How does creative drive performance? Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of differentiator and why, why it's so kind of core yeah. to your product? Yeah, so um, we break down the Micmac ROI uh, into three ways. First way is really clear. We lift your e-retail sales. If I do that, you're gonna keep working with me till the end of time, right? Number two is that we help you build qualified shopper audiences. So we're essentially helping you capture and convert e-retail data in a way that you've never been able to do before. And typically the way that clients measure that is in like return on ad spend efficiency. And then finally is the third, what you just alluded to, which is channel, media, and creative effectiveness. So if you're a brand and you're investing in all of this social content or branded content that's being distributed all over the web, but the majority of your e-com sales come from like Amazon, up until Micmac, you've actually never had a way to connect what you're doing in social to your Amazon sales, right? So there's a complete disconnect in terms of understanding the customer journey and understanding what content actually leads to conversion. Because we own the entire customer journey, these brands now know, wait a second, we've been spending millions of dollars on content that maybe, sure, could be helping with brand awareness, but it's doing crap for e-com sales. It's a totally different creative muscle. So to sort of break down the creative best practices that are commonly seen, so you know we skew really heavily towards consumer products. In beauty, how-to tutorials. Hands down, like that's the content that's gonna drive e-com sales. In food, it's recipe videos or communicating three simple ingredients. In toys, it's unboxing videos. In apparel and footwear, it's 360 degree view of the product on models of different shapes and sizes. It's not a television commercial where the girl's hair is blowing in the wind and you have no idea what she's selling, right? When you're trying to sell products on the internet, you can't be discreet about it. You literally need to shout from the rooftops, this is the product I'm trying to sell, these are the key product benefits, and this is why it's for you. 
but I can really understand the, the QVC mm-hmm. sort of piece to the origin story, uh, at least. And, and actually, I'm curious, when you, when you think about those different formats that work in different ways for different product lines, um, how are you getting to the insight? Like, how quickly can you get to that point of understanding that this particular format works for this yeah. particular category? So, um, you know, in the last two and a half years, I've sold millions and millions of dollars of merchandise, right, across thousands of SKUs. So now our insights are statistically significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also see it cross-platform, right? So not every platform is made equal. What works in YouTube doesn't work in Pinterest. And so also understanding how does all of this break down by channel is really, really important. The big point is that Micmac goes from impressions through ad to carts in real time. So we see the entire customer journey and are able to optimize content and media efficiency to move people down towards the path to purchase. We interrupt this week's episode of Leads to Scale to share an update in regards to our forthcoming conference in London. The 10th annual edition of Social Media Week London, Europe's premier conference for media and marketing professionals is taking place at the QE2 Conference Center in Westminster between October 31st and November 1st. This year's event will continue the 2019 global theme stories with great influence comes great responsibility, a conversation that will explore how social media has become the most influential story platform in the world that has the power to both unite and divide us. Check out our first wave of speakers and secure your pass by visiting socialmediaweek.org forward slash London. And don't forget to use the code leads number two scale at the checkout to save an additional 10% off your pass. All right, let's get back to the show. Let's um, switch to talking about some kind of broader industry trends. So Facebook recently announced that it plans to synchronize its family of apps. Um, Obviously got picked up and has been talked about a lot in the press. Um, And by that, we're we're talking about obviously the synchronization of Messenger, WhatsApp, Instagram. Um, And and part of, I think, the strategic play here for them is is is, is, comes down to this sort of big push into e-commerce. and I'm just sort of, first of all, would love just to kind of get your reaction to that particular announcement. And, and you know, wh- what do you see? Um, how, do, how does this sort of represent an opportunity for you uh, in this particular space? Yeah. Um, one, I always felt like that was only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of surprising to me that the WhatsApp founder stepped down because that happened. So, I mean, every acquisition story, that's what happens. You either get fully integrated with the company or they shut you down. Um, It makes sense because what needs to happen from a revenue standpoint for Facebook is that they need to be able to sync all of their inventory and make it very easy to buy and sell across, right, from a media standpoint. Um, What it also means is Facebook, there's pretty much three most powerful advertising platforms in the world. And it's Facebook, it's Google, and it's Amazon. If you think about the amount of first-party data and their ability to uh, segment and target. So the fact that now all of these things are synced, the opportunity to drive any type of conversion across all three of these platforms in a global landscape is tremendous. Um, so the power of that, I think, is smart for the organization. Customer hit behaviors differ, and also uh, legacy infrastructure is really different when it comes to e-commerce. Um, so 
you know, WhatsApp has been doing commerce for a while, especially in eastern parts of the world. And they've approached it totally different than what's been happening here in the U.S. So I, and even though Micmac is a marketing partner of Facebook and Instagram, and we work really closely with them, I am curious to see how from a leadership product standpoint, uh, they're going to grapple with that because different precedents have been set with brands and retailers in different parts of the world. Um, and the product strategy approach is completely different in WhatsApp versus what's going on in Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, so let's talk about Instagram. Obviously, they just recently announced their new checkout feature. Um, and, and a number of people have commented on the fact that this is this is a, a welcome step forward. Um, but in a way, it, it's potentially also just another example of Instagram or Facebook more broadly launching just yet another sort of Me Too feature and, and, and following kind of the lead um, either of other platform companies, and, and in this particular uh, case, you know, following the lead um, from many of the, the 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 messaging apps coming out of of China. Um, what, what what how you know, how how do you see this particular move? I, I think you've 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 made uh, some comments publicly in the trades um, about some skepticism in, in regards to whether Instagram can really make a big foray into this particular space and whether this particular feature is, is, is going to allow them to, to scale their e-commerce business in the way that they're hoping and, and also whether it's, it's likely to take, you know, a big bite out of, let's say, Amazon or Google's um, equivalent businesses. Yeah, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. And uh, I think at the highest level, it's very exciting, right? Because for me personally, it validates the market opportunity that I've been going after my entire career which is social commerce. Um, in terms of what they released this week, I would call it an experiment. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, like it's right now only for 20 D2C brands. It's gonna remain that way this year. And it's for only organic in-app checkout, meaning if you add to cart an item on Nike within Instagram and you later go to nike.com, the item is not in your cart, right? And the way that the fulfillment works is like a drop ship business, meaning Nike isn't getting any of that customer data. There's no way at scale that brands and retailers are going to let that approach fly. That's my what, personal why, opinion. Why are they? Because in a, in a way, it, it's you know we, we've seen this before, mm -hmm. not in necessarily in e-commerce, but we've certainly seen um, publishers making a foray into social, and in particular. Um, you know, putting a big investment into their presence, you know, on Facebook and how their content loads natively on Facebook. So this sort of feels analogous to that in, in a way. Why are these DSC retail brands so quick to jump in and and want to um, and and want to experiment with Facebook, but not necessarily in a way where the platform feels level? Yeah. Well, one or the playing field, I should say. One. Um <laughs> Most global brands want to be first, right? There's a pretty strong PR halo effect that happened for the 20 brands that were participating. You know, it was a national news story. It was on the Today Show. My mom called me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's when you're in performance marketing, which is, you know, my universe, you test everything. Because what works today may not work tomorrow. So uh, there's definitely an appetite within e-com to see what works. If it doesn't work, you're going to abandon it and you're gonna optimize everything you're doing towards your top converting channels. Um, in terms of the opportunity within uh, a platform like Instagram, you know, you go to Instagram for inspiration and discovery. So 
trying to then move people down towards the path to purchase makes complete sense. And let's not forget, it actually is working at incredible scale. Like if you look at Kylie Jenner's makeup business, right? Or if you look at our, any of the darling direct-to-consumer brands like Away, a Casper, Allbirds, all of those businesses initially were built on the backbone of two things, Facebook and Instagram ads and influencer seeding, right? The way that you drive e-commerce sales in social is niche audience targeting that happens via paid and influencer media. You're not gonna see massive sales from organic because those are already your loyalists. You don't need to tell them about the new Nike shoe launch. They've subscribed to every push notification, email blast, and cool hunting blog that exists. And so I just find the approach in terms of how they're rolling it out really interesting. And then the other thing, which is uh, sort of my very contrarian point of view in the market, is I don't believe we're gonna live in a world where you go to papertowels.com to buy your paper towels and deodorant.com to buy your deodorant. The majority of e-commerce sales today happen in a handful of places. And it's these major third-party e-retailers. And if you look at the product roadmap rollout in the US and in Europe uh, and Brazil, uh, it's been heavily focused on D2C. There's been no integrations with major third-party e-retailers. And I feel extremely strongly, and I've attached this to my personal professional brand, that you're never going to see Facebook and Amazon integrate because they are competing for the same ad dollars. They're at war with each other. And so for Instagram to actually try to build a huge e-commerce business built on the backbone of D2C, I don't see that happening. Interesting. Where, where do you see Pinterest fitting? Because when you describe Instagram as a place you go for inspiration and yep. discovery, it's like, well, hang on a second, that was Pinterest, this kind of whole USB. Where does Pinterest fit into this? And yeah. are you guys integrated with Pinterest? Yeah, so our, so our software is trafficked everywhere. Right. Every social channel, programmatic, paid search, you name it. Um, the DNA of my company is rooted in social video, but we understand that people are everywhere all over the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, Pinterest, Pinterest is really interesting because there's so much opportunity, and I don't think it's being properly harnessed. Um, and what I mean by that is the customer journey on Pinterest is completely different than anywhere else on the internet. It's a planning tool. Mm. I mean like a long-term planning tool. People, it's the backbone of wedding planning, and you will start that a year in advance, right? But when you're pinning something to your wedding pin board, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's a really strong signal that you're in the market to buy a wedding dress, mm. right? And so being able to then convert that should be happening. And I think what's hard from an advertising standpoint is that that was the wrong message to advertisers because there's a metric that every single performance marketer is measured on to do their job right, and it usually happens in a 24-hour, seven-day look-back window. Like That's what you're measured on in terms of ROAS efficiency. So if you've noticed in sort of Pinterest um, I, would not, I don't want to call it propaganda, but Pinterest messaging to marketers, they've started to strip away that narrative that this is a place for long-term planning. And they're now trying to figure out how can we start building ad products and e-commerce solutions that can drive immediate conversion. The challenge is the customer behavior just might not be there. So it's a really, really interesting place. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, we don't spend enough time talking about Pinterest in a way. It, it's so easy to just be drawn into the, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Google mm -hmm. uh, conversation. Um, so um, 
I'd love to sort of wrap the conversation um, by spending a little bit of time talking about um, Social Media Week. <laughs> no, don't let's spend, talk about you. That's, that's, <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about, obviously, you're going to be speaking at our New York conference coming up in April. We're very excited about that. The title of your session or the title of your talk is How the Mobile Phone Collapsed the Marketing Funnel. I'm sure we've touched on a lot of what you will be speaking about, but I, I'd love to give the listeners a little bit of a sneak peek. I'd love for you to share some of the insights that you'll be um, discussing and talking about and, and what, what you think or what you hope the audience will take away from your session. Yeah. Um, I fundamentally believe that the mobile feed has changed the customer journey. So for everyone who ever took any marketing class, there was this classic pyramid and it was turned upside down. And at the longest part of the triangle, right, is brand awareness and then product consideration and then purchase and then loyalty. That's not how the customer journey works anymore. If you open up your Facebook app or you open up your Instagram app and you start scrolling, every single time that you see a product message from a brand that actually causes you to go buy something, it's actually product consideration first. I'm sure plenty of listeners can think about a time where they don't even know the brand of the product that they bought, but they saw it as an Instagram ad. Brand loyalty now happens after the initial purchase. So the presentation is going to talk about this modern day customer journey, which you know kind of blows traditional brand marketers' heads because it's not what they were trained. And then I'm literally going to teach people how to drive e-com sales through this medium. It's not rocket science. The reality is if you've never been in a, put in a position to drive e-commerce sales before, you just won't know how to do it. And I open up the curtain since I've been doing this my whole career, and I show people the five things that they need to do every single day to turn their content and media into conversions. I love it. I can't wait. And I, and I think that um, it is such an interesting time, as you say, because there's so much conventional wisdom that is, there's so much conventional wisdom that needs to be challenged. Um, that probably isn't being challenged enough. And I think also, you know, we're at such a fascinating like inflection point as an industry, um, you know, as we think about the kind of the role of, of social media um, in, in terms of its impact, you know, on our p- both personal and uh, on our professional lives. Um, and, you know, our theme this year is stories with great influence comes great responsibility. And I, and I just want to kind of maybe sort of end the conversation by just like getting getting your thoughts really on the state of social media today. Like, you know, how, how are you wrestling with, with a lot of what's going on right now, both the good and the bad? And, and, and you know, how are you sort of like staying focused, in, you know, almost like executionally in terms of what you're doing um, and, and how are you avoiding becoming sort of overly distracted by a lot of the noise that's, that's out there? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of noise, right? Like news cycles are real. 24 hours, they're on to the next thing. You know, Trump tweets. Um, For me, uh, growing up in this industry, right, uh, I think we're at a point where a lot of people are tired um, and we're starting to tune out a lot. And so I do believe, you know, as 2019 continues and going into 2020, we're going to see that social networks get smaller. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, PATH was ahead of its time. We're going to see more things like that reemerge where people are looking to have more intimate connections. Um, And even, I think, a stronger focus from the current social platforms on Messenger um, and really figuring out a way to monetize those more intimate moments. But I'm still completely bullish on all of these platforms because they're the most powerful communication channels in the world. They reach billions of people. 
the amount of first party data that they have harnessed over the last 10 years, you can't rival it. So literally every single time one of their stocks plummet, I'm buying more stock. Mm. I'm very bullish on the future of these companies. I do think that our industry is gonna get more regulated. I think it's a good thing for the industry, but the speed of regulation, I don't know if it can keep up with the amount of change that's happening. Yeah, I and think that's definitely a, a big thing. And, I, and I, there's a couple of things I think you touched on I'd love for you to, to, to build on. I mean, the obviously you know zuck came out and has been talking um a lot about the sort of the the shift that he wants facebook to make um and in particular you know the big sort of realization i think and when you look back over the last decade is that you know not everyone wants um their dirty laundry um you know um you know out there in in openly available to everyone for everyone to see and and you know open was just such a fundamentally important part of like Facebook's kind mm-hmm. of mission in the first 10 to 15 years of its existence. How do we bring the world closer together? Well, by making it more open. And and I think that it's not that the thesis was wrong, it's that it's just not the only thesis that we should be looking at. Yep. And I think the shift towards um, a focus, or well, a shift towards, you know, private messaging environments where people feel safe, where people feel um, as though their their data and their information is protected. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these are obviously important things. And I mean, look, you know, Facebook has made um, some significant bets on messaging mm-hmm. um, way back. I mean, right. you know, what WhatsApp's probably like a four five year old yeah, acquisition yeah. at this point. Um, so it's not like this is new to them. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of how they're talking about it publicly, there's a, an important shift that, that that is currently being being made. Um, and, you know, I think it, it speaks to um, a, a sort of, you know, the, the, the way we as consumers are starting to feel. I and mean, I think it's interesting you say that we're sort of becoming tired. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know whether you think that's like us as professionals in the business or, or whether we're talking about just like the average consumer. No, I, I think like I don't want to turn this into political discussion. Um, but I think here in the U.S., just from a media standpoint, more people I talk to, they're just tuning things out. Mm. They're turning push up notifications off. Like it's just too depressing. It's too much. It's too constant. And I think that permeates into every other aspect of culture. Right. No, I think that's right. I think that like you know, it's sort of the the mainstream media cycle and politics, um, not just here in the U.S. but but obviously in other parts of the world is 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 kind of like ruining the party yeah. for everybody else because it's burying. Um, you know the the truth, and and that is, th- and I've always maintained this as long as I've been um, invested in trying to kind of understand what all of this means and and what role and impact social media should have in our lives. I've always maintained that we have to look at kind of both sides of of the argument. We we, we have to just recognize that it's always going to be good and it's always going to be simultaneously it's always going to be simultaneously good and bad, and we have to understand both of those sides. But the trouble is that the news cycle, as you say, is dominating things right mm-hmm. now, and people are just like starting to kind of tune out, mm-hmm. and, and that's obviously like not a great thing. Well, listen, we are out of time, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining. Um, for the benefit of our listeners who want to find more information about you, and for those that um, you know will be unable to to join us um, at Social Media Week New York in April, where can they get more information about you and Micmac? If you want to reach me, I'm Rachel at Micmac M I K M A K dot TV. Wonderful, I love that. So direct. Thanks again, Rachel. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. Leads to Scale is edited and produced by Al Manorino. 
For the latest news and insights, or to learn more information about how to get involved with future Social Media Week events, please visit socialmediaweek.org.